Welcome to Chiroticast, a podcast about rhetoric, current events, and how big ideas play out in our daily lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth Thorpe. Our goal at Chiroticast is to look at how rhetoric functions in the real world. On Saturday, June 20th, Trump had his first rally in months. It was a bit of a mess from the word go. The rally was held in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and was originally scheduled on June 19th. This caused a great deal of controversy because Tulsa is the site of the worst incident of racial violence in American history. June 19th is also known as Juneteenth and is the commemoration of the end of slavery. Perhaps in normal times, and for a normal presidency, this wouldn't be seen as hugely problematic. The president could take the opportunity to do an epideictic, which means ceremonial, address commemorating the events in a respectful and somber way. But these are not normal times, and this is not a normal presidency. At first, the word was that the president was going to do a speech on race. People were really apprehensive about this because the president does not have a good record when it comes to race. This is why people were so upset about it being on Juneteenth in Tulsa. Nobody trusted this president to handle that with dignity or respect. His history with racial issues is so fraught and problematic that when he announced his intentions, the uproar was instantaneous. Nobody believed his goal was to commemorate black struggle or achievement. The assumption was that this was an attempt to thumb his nose at black pain. The reputation of this administration is that it is racist. So the uproar about a rally on Juneteenth in Tulsa was instantaneous. In a move that I found surprising, Trump responded to this by moving his rally by one day. Usually his response to criticism is to double down, but this time he seemed to take some criticism seriously. I don't know if it is the environment in which he finds himself, but he actually took public outcry into consideration for once. And instead of doing a speech about race, it would be just a normal campaign rally. Then there was the issue of dealing with COVID. There was a lot of controversy leading up to the rally because Oklahoma was seeing rising numbers of COVID cases every day leading up to the rally. But the rally was not going to require masks or social distancing inside the arena. They said they would encourage everyone to take healthy precautions, but nothing would be required. And everyone anticipated this rally would be big. This leads us to perhaps the biggest snafu of the entire event. The numbers. The Trump campaign claimed that over a million people had requested tickets to the event. They anticipated huge numbers, around 100,000 at this rally. They set up big overflow spaces where Mike Pence would talk to those who were waiting outside and wanted to get in, but couldn't because of the space. The arena only holds 20,000. This is really important to Trump. He is notoriously obsessed with crowd sizes and numbers, and this was supposed to be his grand re-entry into the public. But it soon became clear that the crowd wasn't coming. Just before the rally started, they contacted supporters to say that there was still plenty of room if they wanted to come. 
They began to dismantle the overflow area because there wasn't anyone in the overflow area. The arena of 20,000 wasn't filled. In fact, it was sparse. The final count of people was less than 6,200. The word is that some of this is because of the work of a new generation of anti-Trump activists. The inflated numbers the Trump team expected may have been due to TikTok teens and K-pop stands who, in an organized and concerted effort, requested thousands of tickets to the rally, so the administration had no idea how many supporters to actually expect. While these teens are not really responsible for the low turnout, they did inflate the expectations, making the low turnout look even worse for Trump. Trump tried to blame the low turnout on protesters outside the arena, but the number of protesters there was negligible and could not have kept tens of thousands of Trump supporters away from the rally. The Trump team had expected 100,000 supporters that evening, and the small number of protesters could hardly have managed to keep that many at bay. So ultimately, the rally was a disaster for Trump from the moment it was announced. If you watched the rally, it seemed like a normal rally. There was a boisterous crowd that hung on Trump's every word and cheered and clapped and yelled enthusiastically. But when the camera moved out, you saw a lot of empty space. Here's the thing, though. I did watch the rally, and there are a few things I want to talk about with Trump's speech. Because it was weird. Real weird. First, let me give you an incomplete but lengthy outline. He claimed the silent majority is stronger than ever before. See my earlier podcast on the silent majority. Then he claimed that the GOP is the party of Abe Lincoln and law and order. See my earlier podcast on law and order. He talked about 300 federal judges appointed and approved in his time. He claimed he cleaned up the VA, and the problems were the fault of unions and civil servants. He took credit for getting things back on track after the oil crisis. He took credit for ending chaos in Minneapolis with the National Guard in one hour. There was a lot about how the radical left is causing damage everywhere and attacking the police and perpetrating violence, and the media is calling it beautiful and nobody is telling them to wear masks. He argued that COVID-19 should be called the Chinese virus, which he has done a phenomenal job with. He has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. He said, when you test more, you find more. So slow the testing down. The kids will recover. Open the schools. Kids have great immune systems. He said the unhinged left-wing mob is erasing history. They are oppressing anybody who does not conform to them. Then he talked about saluting the West Point cadets 600 times. He said he was wearing leather-bottom shoes, which are good for flat surfaces, but not good for the ramp. And he had just saluted 600 times, and he was super hot and tired, and there was no railing. The general said he should grab him. He told the general he might, because he can't fall with the fake news watching. And this part is really long. He spent a lot of time talking about this ramp. Then on to drinking water. He said he had just saluted 600 times so he couldn't lift his hands and arms, and he didn't want to get water on his tie. 
he was still going. And all of that was to say that the media are the worst people in the world. Then he went on to say that we need legislation that if you burn the flag, you go to jail for one year. Then he claimed that if Biden is elected, he will surrender the country to mobsters and money will be worthless. Then he wanted us to look at the stock market. Then he said, our people are not nearly as violent, but if they were, it would be a terrible day for the other side. Then he went into the story about Air Force One. He got a good deal on Air Force One planes. This is a really long story, and it gave him an excuse to call Boeing leaders dumb sons of bitches. Then it was on to foreign aid, and how we are owed a good deal of money from Germany. Then it was the choice in 2020 is between bowing to the left-wing mob or standing tall as a proud American. Then it was about he's upset with the NFL for its comments on kneeling. Then it was about Joe Biden and the Dems who want to prosecute people for attending church but not for burning a church. They want to abolish bail and ICE. We're doing great on the border. Nobody's coming over right now. The chaos you see in dim cities is what you will see everywhere if I lose. At his direction, the military took down top terrorists in the world. Then there was some foreign policy discussion, but it was just lists of things. The left calls you a racist for using perfectly fine terms. The left wants to subsidize late-term abortions and after-birth executions. The left wants to restrict your religious liberty. The left wants to ban fracking after we've become the greatest energy power in the world. The left wants to obliterate your constitutional rights. Biden will stack the court. Then he said, I'm more handsome. I have better things. I ran for office once and became president. They are not the elite. Then he talked about how people don't understand that his administration really won on DACA, they're going to redo it and it will all work out. It's basically like they just have to redo the paperwork. Then he said Biden is a Trojan horse for socialism. Biden has eulogized segregationists and members of the KKK, but smears people like you as racists. Obama and Biden built the cages. Biden has supported every policy that hurt black America for the last 40 years, Racial justice begins with Biden's retirement from public life. We built the best economy in the history of the world. Then the plague came. It's going to be the single greatest economy we've ever had. It's been the strongest 50 days in the history of the stock market. Then he lists the accomplishments for black communities. Then he talked about school choice, murder, crime, and poverty in democratic cities, how he will always support law enforcement, how he will protect Medicare, Social Security, and pre-existing conditions, how we'll build the wall, and a bunch of other things we're going to do, and then a bunch of conservative platitudes, appeals to tradition, and no real good appeals to pathos. Oh my God, that is so long and it is so much. And it is nowhere near the whole thing. But I hope that makes a few things clear to you about this speech and Trump's speaking style in general. Trump makes lists of claims. He speaks for hours on end at these rallies without developing points. It's just claim upon claim upon claim. 
There is no evidence or reasoning. Trump is not interested in making arguments. What that tells us is that Trump is not trying to convince anyone. These rallies are not meant to sway anyone to his way of thinking. They are strictly what they say, to rally the base. At a rally, you don't need to clarify your reasoning or provide evidence. You just state your claim in the confidence that your base will agree with you and you wait for the applause and move on. What you get then is some pretty bad speeches unless you are already in lockstep with the speaker. There are no appeals to logos, which we've talked about before. Reasoning isn't necessary to convince people to accept these claims. There are few appeals to ethos. The audience doesn't need to be convinced of the speaker's character. They're already enamored. And there actually are not that many appeals to pathos. The audience is already worked up. The speaker doesn't have to work to appeal to the audience's emotions. There may be some emotive language and the occasional appeals to fear or authority, but you don't get that many narratives or metaphors because the emotion is already running pretty high. It's an emotional speech, to be sure, but not really because of that many appeals to pathos in the strictest sense. It's just that the list of claims that he makes connect to his audience on an emotional level. But it's this narrative idea that I want us to delve into a bit further. There are two extended stories that Trump told. Usually when a politician shares a story, it is to pack an emotional punch. But Trump seemed to have different goals in mind with his narratives. Instead of appeals to pathos, he was focusing on appeals to ethos. But they were odd narratives in the grand scheme of things. He spent an inordinate amount of time talking about the day he was at West Point and his negotiations with Boeing. First, let's talk about West Point. Trump spends a lot of time talking about how many times he saluted the cadets at West Point. He wants to make sure we know it was 600 times. This is apparently so he can explain why he drank with two hands that day. He then shows us he is capable of drinking with one hand and throws the glass away, which I guess is supposed to be a display of his masculinity, and the crowd goes wild. He also spends a lot of time talking about how he had leather-soled shoes, and this was inappropriate for the kind of ramp he was walking on. He tells us how hot it was. He tells us over and over again how he walked and ran down the ramp, but the fake news media didn't cover it correctly. I did not time this portion of the speech because when it started, I did not realize how long it was going to be, and I didn't think I would need to. I had no idea how important this was going to be to this speech. But my guess is he talks about Joe Biden for longer than he does about being at West Point but he talks about being at West Point longer at one time than he does about anything else. This is really an anecdote that he stretches out to a speech within a speech. It is long and it is rambling. It is truly a significant part of the speech. The second narrative I want to focus on, that he focuses on quite a bit, is his negotiation with Boeing. 
Trump spends a lot of time making sure you know that he negotiated the price of the Air Force One planes with Boeing. This isn't a particularly riveting narrative. He basically just outlines a back and forth of numbers, and he even leaves out the end where he gets the price down to the $3 billion range from the $6 billion range. And that's it. That's the story. But he spends so long on it. And he comes back to it once or twice throughout the speech. This is obviously really important to him. He needs you to know that he negotiated this deal with Boeing. It is an important accomplishment for him. The intense and extended focus on these two seemingly small narratives tell us a few things about Trump. One, they tell us about what he values and how he sees himself. First, the West Point anecdote. I really hesitate to even call it a narrative. It's long and drawn out, but there really isn't a beginning, middle, or end. It's just a description of a thing that happened. There's a great podcast on this from Rhetoric Lee if you're interested. It's clearly a defense. He was made fun of for some stupid things by a hypercritical public, specifically the way he walked and the way he drank a glass of water, but he can't let it go. Look, the criticism to begin with was pretty dumb. Some people tried to make it out as concerns about his health, but what it comes down to is that for some people, everything Trump does is worthy of critique. But Trump is notoriously thin-skinned. He has an incredibly fragile ego, and this is the kind of thing that really gets to him. What should have been a non-issue turned into a huge portion of this speech. Trump spent an entire portion of his speech defending his masculinity, which he felt had been impugned. It was a litany of excuses as to why his behavior was the way it was, followed by a macho display of throwing a glass of water. So much of Trump's appeal is vested in hypermasculinity that he can't let it go when a criticism is made that makes him seem weak. Secondly, the negotiation story serves the same purpose. It portrays him in some kind of masterful position. It's an entire story designed to show that he is in charge. An entire corporation, Boeing, bent to his will. And he didn't have to do anything but just tell them what to do. This is a story about how he is powerful and can command people and groups to do his bidding. It's a really boring story, but in this speech, it is a story about his masculinity and his power. The second thing these stories tell us is what the Trump presidency is about and what it is accomplishing right now. You will notice that Trump does not spend the same amount of time talking about his accomplishments dealing with COVID. He mentions it, but there is not an extended narrative. The only other thing the president gives an extended amount of time to like this is his list of claims about what he has achieved for the black community, and it is not a narrative, it is just a list of claims. These narratives tell us about what Trump can effectively describe at this point in his presidency. This is a speech of drawn-out anecdotes with no substance. 
He has nothing he can base his campaign on right now, so he is talking about small things he can anchor his campaign to in order to avoid the bigger things. His accomplishments are owning the media by showing how they were wrong to attack him and negotiating with Boeing, so he spends time on that. Everything else is just a sentence or two, and then he moves on. What he wants to describe and spend time on are the things that show him to be a real man, but those things are small and trivial. He doesn't have major accomplishments to brag about. So these anecdotes tell us something about the upcoming campaign. Trump is still anchoring his campaign in claims of masculinity, but his proofs of masculinity are much smaller in scale than they once were. This may be less convincing for those outside his loyal base. Thanks for listening to this episode of Chiroticast. We really hope you'll join us again. If you have feedback, we'd love to hear it. If you have questions, we'll try to answer them. If you have issues you'd like us to address, send them our way and we'll do our best to get to that. Make sure to subscribe or leave a review. Email us at elizabeth at chiroticast.com. That's K-A-I-R-O-T-I-C-A-S-T. And we look forward to seeing you next week.